Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of History Creeps. I am one of your co-hosts, Carter, and with me on my, I think it's my left, he's really 200 miles, actually more like 2,000 miles up the coast, uh, Chris Chavez. Hola. And uh, on my right, I'm going to assume it's my right, it'd probably be more like my middle since he's in western North Carolina, uh, Johnny Townsend. Hello, everybody. Thank you for having me. My name is Chris Chavez. Uh, everybody, I, give give Johnny some love. He's had a he's had a a rough day today with see, what with the death of Luigi and all. I was going to I was going to pretend to be Chris and and rejoice in the fact that Luigi was terribly horribly murdered in front of my eyes. I see, see, see. <laughs> <laughs> Solo voy a hablar español. I, I don't know what you're saying, but yes, I agree with whatever you just said. My my wife would know she has a bachelor's degree in Spanish, so talk about bragging right there. She she knows, man, whenever we watch a movie and they speak Spanish, she's like, that's not what they really said. What they really <laughs> said was blah 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 blah. Uh no puedo leer español, solo lo hablo. Oh, he's true. He does not speak Spanish, but he loves to speak Spanish. That's what he just, <laughs> that's what he just said there. You know I was it, gonna be like Yo soy Buzz Lightyear. Uh so listeners won't get <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. KK. Man, I love that movie. I do too, man. Uh, That's one of the best parts. So, listeners, unless you're a patron, uh, you're not going to get the inside joke there. But uh, what I was using was the English to Spanish on Google and just typing it out because I can read. I can, I can, like, I can read it out loud and and say what the words are supposed to say pretty well. Uh, So, I did it that. I did it that. Yeah. You did did it that. that. You did do it that. I did do it that. So, uh, yeah, here we are, guys. R- History Creeps, the long-awaited roundtable episode. Long-awaited. What's That's right. I don't even know what the topic is, guys. What could it be? Dun-dun-dun. Um, you'll have to wait because... Green Giant. We've got a current creep. Oh, I'm very excited to talk about this one. Oh, yeah, me too. According, Chris, please tell us what the current creep is. According to ABC News, July 31st, 2018, in Virginia House race... Questions abound over Republican candidate and, quote, Bigfoot erotica. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's been a summer of surreal political feuds, and a Twitter controversy proved no exception. Leslie Cockburn. A <laughs> <laughs> I'm too immature for that last name. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Leslie Cockburn, a Democrat. A Democratic congressional candidate for Virginia's 5th District accused her opponent of being, quote, a devotee of Bigfoot erotica. Isn't that what she go to the like the doctor for a little discreet, oh. discreetly like, hey, I got a case of the cockburn. <laughs> <laughs> I really need you to take care of this baby powder, uh, whatever it's going to be. It's just that's funny you, that that's it's when you go to Rite Aid and, they're, and you're like, I need the crab medicine. Yeah. The what? You, you, the crab medicine. I got yeah, you, like, to, you know the crab medicine. You're trying to whisper it to the to the pharmacist. Look, I got I got this I got this cockburn. <laughs> but the pharmacist is like shouting across the store. Hey, where do we keep the uh, herpes medicine? Yeah, this dude's got some cockburn. <laughs> it's funny too that it's tied to a story about Bigfoot erotica. Bigfoot erotica, right? Like cockburn so is something that you get. So if you go you know, to Leslie Bigfoot erotica, if you go to Leslie Cockburn's Twitter page and look at her post, she actually provides a screenshot in which her opponent, Republican Denver Riggleman, 
Republican. Oh, Denver is his name. Denver Riggleman. Okay. What is with these last names? Riggleman uh, references a book about Bigfoot that he co-authored. Quote, my opponent, Denver Riggleman, running mate of Corey Stewart, was caught on camera campaigning with a white supremacist. Now he's been exposed as a devotee of Bigfoot erotica, she wrote. (laughs) This is not what we need on Capitol Hill. And she added an image. It's a sketch of a Bigfoot (laughs) with a rather long cockburn, except it's censored. It's it's, uh, censored out (laughs) as part of the tweet. The screenshot accompanying mo- the post. I love, was- just to stop you real quick. I love that she legit could have just stopped at the at the KKK thing. You could have just stopped there, and that would have been enough. But she has to go for this. <laughs> she has to add the sexy Bigfoot stuff. <laughs> so here's the thing. You ready? The oh, pic- yeah. She got this this sketched picture from GOP rival Riggleman's Instagram account. Oh, snaps. It shows a drawing of a hulking, shaggy-furred creature with a censored box obscuring his genitals. In another tweet, Cockburn provided a screenshot of the same Instagram account in which Riggleman references a forthcoming book he authored entitled Mating Habits of Bigfoot and Why Women Want Him. (laughs) Well, then. Good lord. Oh man. Could you imagine if you lived in that county and uh this is this is the race that's going on <laughs> to lead <laughs> to represent you <laughs> between these two. Oh good lord. What do you even say to that? I mean, like, how do you <laughs> Who do you even vote for in this? Because <laughs> in my opinion, neither Bigfoot are coming off great. <laughs> Bigfoot? Yeah, I'd rather have Bigfoot represent me. <laughs> Good lord. So there you go. Uh oh man. Bigfoot erotica has now this, entered the political mainstream. Let me let me ask you guys this. Like there is a lot of uh, here, I'll I'll premise this with this. Uh I'm an artist, so a lot of times <laughs> when somebody will ask me to draw something, I will like I I'll need to look at some references just to get an idea, you know, get the little nuances of characters and such that I, I want to add to my sketch. Have you ever had uh, anybody ask you to draw erotica? pictures i'll get to that oh okay um, <laughs> uh, so uh so one time i'll give you two stories real quick one time uh somebody wanted me to draw rocket raccoon which was fine that's one of my i love that character so uh, i'd be glad to so uh, i typed in my little google there hey rocket raccoon and i was just looking through all the pictures and then apparently uh, there are some very risque rocket raccoon pictures. Dude, uh, rule, rule 34, bro. Rule yeah, in 34. Which, in which he and Groot are really enjoying their company together. <laughs> rule and, 34, uh, bro. And I didn't care for it at all, but that just told me right there that, you know, all any anything could become erotica if we just really believe in it. If it exists, <laughs> there is porn of it. Yes. So let me, let me get to the other story. I was at a, a con a convention and this guy comes around to me and he's an older guy and he looks at me and he goes, he goes, Hey, uh, do you know, um, the, the, the attack of the 40 foot woman, you know, that old movie. Yeah. And I go, yeah, it's a classic. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. And it's got that famous cover of like, she's like standing over like a highway yeah. or something like that. I can't remember exactly how it yeah, goes. Yeah. But, yeah. 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 But everybody's seen it. So he goes, I want you to take that picture. <laughs> Turn it and- sideways. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I want you to take that picture. And uh, uh, if you could just draw it. Oh, God. But I need her to be nude. <laughs> Did he say it like that, too? Was, he, was there pauses between what he was saying? I, this has been years, so oh, I'm God. trying to remember exactly how I did it, but he was, <laughs> from what I remember, he was kind of breathing a little heavy when he was telling me this, oh, for one, God. which made it creepy to start with. Where were his hands? <laughs> well, they were they were holding on to the picture that he had. Oh, God, good. Yeah, a little too much, so. Uh, <laughs> oh, this and, is amazing. <laughs> and uh, I looked at him, and I go, um, I kind of just kind of do, like, PG family drawings here. Uh, but I'm sure there'll be other people who will do it. And fast forward, one of my buddies who's also an artist uh, drew a pretty awesome version of what he asked for. <laughs> Your buddy's just it like, I'll great. do that. I'll take the money. Yep, and he did. And it looked great. So. <laughs> what size did he want it? <laughs> <laughs> I meant the drawing, obviously. Are you sure, uh, though? Did what size really cockburn? Know? Like uh, the, the, he wanted that cockburn to be about nine by twelve. Nice, that's amazing. Jesus. Oh Lord! So there you go. Current yeah, current. we can just end the show there, right? We don't have to go. That <laughs> that's the end of the show. Uh, all right, now here we are, guys. We're here for the roundtable. Uh, like I said, long-awaited roundtable, and there was a tie between two that were on the uh, the Patreon poll. One was the USS Indianapolis. And the other one was Travis Walton. And usually when there's a tie, we need a tiebreaker. So I assigned odds to one and even to the other. And I asked Aaron to give me a number. And that's how we came about doing Travis Walton. All right, which kind of works out because we've alluded to him and mentioned his name a few times on this show. Yeah, and we yes, know we have. know a lot about uh, – well, we're, we're all very familiar with the story uh, all three of us are having, you know, been interested in this our whole lives. We've obviously heard of this. Uh, we were all alive during the time of the film Fire in the Sky when it came out. So, uh, yeah, Travis Walton UFO incident. Who wants to get into it? Who wants to start it off? Well, I want to I want to just say this real quick. When I was wanting to go back and kind of uh, do a little bit of I always try to do a little research for all these, even if it's not my topic. And I'll just put it in YouTube. Hey, Travis Walton. And yeah. literally. Video after video after video of this guy comes up. Yeah. Yeah. He, he talks a lot. He sure does. He doesn't mind telling you the story. Nope. Uh, he says it quite a bit. Yep. Uh, finding the other guys who are involved is a little tougher, um, you know, because he wasn't the only one that was kind of a part of this story. But we'll get to that when we kind of dive into it. Uh, but I was really shocked by literally how much screen time he's gotten from this. I mean, I don't blame him. If something terrible happened to me. Uh, I want to, you know, make a negative into a positive, I guess. Right. But like, I was really shocked by how much Travis Walton there is out there. There's plenty of it to watch and find. Yeah, there is definitely a lot. You can probably type in Travis Walton in any year between to, uh, 2018 and what, maybe 1990, even 80s, 1980s, and you'll find somebody's video of him doing a, a talking, a, a talking, a, 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 a talking. A, yeah, he's doing a talking, doing a presentation. He's he's speaking at, at one of these like MUFON or or UFO conventions, or I even saw one where he was like at a little library with a bunch of like maybe 20 people in front of him. Uh, yeah, I mean, he was on all kinds of TV shows, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, I saw uh, Montel Williams. I watched yep. him on Montel Williams. Yep, did uh, the same. Larry King Live. Yep, uh, watched that one, too. <laughs> all right, it seems like we all watch the same with the videos here. 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so let's get into this. Let's get into the story of Travis Walton. Um, All right, so I think. Well, I think, at first, real quick, I want to point something out. What you guys are saying, uh, you know, the guy from Black Hawk Down, the uh, the helicopter pilot, uh, the one that survived, the one that's playing by, played by Ron Eldred in the movie, Mike Durant. He gives a similar talk about what he uh, went through during that incident in Somalia. Not, I'm not saying, you know, I'm kind of going with Johnny here, turn a negative into a positive, but you know, I don't, I'm not sure if he gives the talk for money or if he just, you know, gives a talk for the army or something now. Uh, but he does, and it's on my Black Hawk Down uh, DVD that he gives this talk about what happened to him. Not saying, you know, not trying to trash Mike Durant here, love the guy, what he went through is horrible, but just throwing that out there. I personally, because I, I kind of lean towards believing Travis Walton, and I don't want to, you know, we try not to pass too much judgment on our show. Oh, I wasn't, I wasn't. Unless it's, to do unless that, it's so. Stan Romanek, and then we really pass judgment. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wasn't meaning to become off all judgy. Uh, I, was, I was just saying that, like, it's, if you want to look for him, there's plenty of them out yeah, there to find. You, you I feel it. like there's no way for you to, you know, to say that. And because, like, the amount of information that's out there suggests that, yes, he does go, you know, to tell the story a lot and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I will say that from most of the stuff, I mean, obviously, I haven't heard everything he said, but it usually stays fairly consistent from what I've heard. Overall, the ones the ones on YouTube, most of them are fairly consistent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every once in a while there'll be like a new little weird wrinkle thrown in, um, but yeah, it's uh, so. I guess we can all. Where did this story take place? Is it out west somewhere? I know that it takes place Snowflake, Arizona. Yeah, Snowflake, right. Arizona. Now I didn't know this in northern Arizona. Uh, it's actually densely populated by forests for some reason, and I've been to Arizona. Uh, a few places in Arizona, and I, for some reason, I always felt like it was it was a lot more dry and desert y. You know what yeah. I mean? You always think it's a dry heat there in Arizona. You th- yeah, you think of Phoenix. Yeah, right? yes. You think of like yeah. Phoenix. Uh, Chris, I'm sure you go through this all the time when you tell people from New- you're from New York. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, and, and don't say like I'm from, but like don't specifically yeah. say you know I'm I live near Buffalo or something like yeah. that, but just say yeah I'm from New York. People automatically assume you mean New York City. Yeah, or if I say Buffalo, they they assume I'm actually talking to them from under ten feet of snow. Uh, that's. <laughs> <laughs> and Buffalo is so not not what it used to be in terms of that crazy snow stuff. I mean, we get snow, but anyway, uh, yeah, the, the the forests up there are actually pretty thick. And this takes place in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest, uh, November fifth, nineteen seventy five, Snowflake, Arizona. Uh, right. So Travis and a bunch of uh, other guys are they're loggers, I guess. Is that the best way you could describe them? Yeah, I believe there were seven yeah. seven in total. Him and six other guys. Yeah, so yeah, they, they were all there rode on a government contract. Yeah, so they were all they all rode in one truck, per my understanding. Yeah, it was a double yep. double cab or something like that. So they all fit in one truck. So the roads going into this place are fairly are not in good shape. They're very bumpy. Yeah, uh, you got to take them slow. Now, if you go too fast, like your axle or whatever could break in half. Oh they, yeah, they're they're described as very very rough roads. We got some of those up here in the mountains of North Carolina. Uh, you know where uh, you need four wheel drive pretty much to get. That's, get, that's yeah. exactly what I was going to say. Up near you, yeah, you definitely need a four wheel drive. I don't right. drive up near you without a four wheel drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get that from all the ladies. And <laughs> thanks, uh, bro. <laughs> so, 
So uh, they're they're out in the woods. I think they're I think their day's about over. They're kind of done for the day. Yeah, yeah. They're uh, cut, they're all piling down back trees in. and stuff. And they're all about to pile into their truck. And I think all of them pile into one truck. And as they're about to leave, this light kind of shows up. Yeah, yeah. And and they're mesmerized by this. They see it the through the trees. I think is out. what it was. They see through the trees. There's like they hear a buzzing sound and like. In through the trees, they see this bright orange glow. So they drive towards it, and then when they break through the trees, is when they they, they see this weird. This is exactly where they pull up and uh. And originally, and stop. they assume it's it might be a forest fire. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that they might be stuck out there if if it's you know crossing the road or something. Right. Yeah, but when when they see what they see, they they the the driver, uh, I believe it's his one of his best friends, uh, slams on his the brakes, uh. And uh, Travis Walton jumps out. Yes. And Mike Rogers was the driver. Yeah. Yeah. Mike. Yeah. And apparently, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of details you'll hear in this story. Like I even heard to the exact detail where everybody sat in that truck. Like the smoker sat in one part, blah, 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 and that type of stuff. I don't know why that was important, but, you know, that's how detailed this stuff can get. Yeah. But the reason that I'd heard that Travis jumped out in the first place is that he, and I want to say it's his brother, but don't. You know, I, I it's his brother. Okay, uh, they had discussed UFOs before. Yeah, and they had said that if they ever saw one, they would get out and try to investigate it. And he does. Much. And most of his his uh, his talks that he gives, he does say um, that when they slammed on the on the brakes, one of the men in the truck said something along the lines of like, "Oh my God, it's a UFO," or "Oh my God, it's a flying saucer," or something like that. A spaceship, I think, is what he said. I think yeah. that was uh, Greg, the kid. They had a 17-year-old kid with them, like on a summer thing, kind of. Yeah, so Travis gets out, and then that's where it all kind of just happens. Uh, the light hits Travis, and they think, and it pretty much kind of doesn't kind of knock him so many feet away or something like that. Yeah, it's like an explosion, they say. The, yeah. This light hits him, and he goes flying off, uh, yeah, I think like 10 feet. Yeah, and to the point where they were like, well, he's dead. He's obviously dead. He just right. got killed, and we need to take off. So they take off and they go as fast as they can on this on these roads that are not meant to be going fast on. And Mike's truck gets all torn up. Yes. And but they drive. I don't remember how far away they were, but they got to a certain point away where they stopped the truck and they're like, we have we have to go back. We can't just leave him there. Right. It wasn't too far. But yeah. Yeah. So they go back and they do not see him anywhere. Nope. He's missing for how many days? Seven. Five. Five days. But in the meantime of him being missing, this is the part that I, I really find fascinating. And the We all find this part fascinating. <laughs> of him, of him missing is these guys go out and they tell the police. And they say, hey, are, are guys missing? At first, they don't want to say uh, the UFO thing because, you know, that automatically just gonna, is going to make people think that, you've, you know, that you're, you're bonkers or whatever. Exactly. And uh, so they're like, yeah, our friend is missing. And we were out logging or whatever here at this one place, and we don't know where he is. And so there's like a search for him, and nobody finds him. Yep. Uh, I think to the point where like those guys, they to the point where the the police they were like, well, maybe he was actually murdered, and maybe these guys are responsible for that. I mean, there's all kinds of things that were coming out yeah, then that they made up they didn't a story. Have, yeah. Yeah, because there wasn't a body there, and eventually they did say the light thing. So, like, well, maybe they're making this up to cover up the fact that they actually murdered him. Yep. And he had uh, had a problem with one of the guys on the crew. 
Right. They had had they had had issues. So anyway, sorry, Johnny. Anyway, continue. (laughs) No, 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 no. This is all good stuff because I'm not going to remember all these details myself. And at one point, I want to hand it over to one of y'all. But um, so eventually, though, I I can't remember. Is this where they were also like? I know all of them were interrogated and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And then eventually, Travis just kind of shows up again. Well, they yeah, the, the officers become suspicious of the story. Uh, because there was no physical, nothing that they could say. Um, so they decide that they're going to bring the guys in to talk to them and, and, and question them a little bit further. Um, and I think they even all take lie detector tests because it's brought up, you know, would you be, you know, willing to take one? And every single one of them unanimously, like, yes, not a problem. Uh, but Except yeah. for Dallas. Was that what Dallas had, Yeah, Dallas had an issue taking the lie detector test because apparently he'd had some run-ins with law enforcement before. And he was kind of one of those loner type guys that didn't really, you know, trust. He was one of the initial people saying, if we tell them about the UFO part, they're going to think we're crazy. They're going to think we killed him. Uh, yeah. And I wonder if it is because he had a problem with him that he, he didn't want to bring that up either. But uh, but yeah, it says the polygraph was administered on Monday, November 10th. All of Roger's remaining crew took the polygraph examinations administered by Cy Gilson. His questions asked if any of the men caused harm to Walton or knew who had caused Walton harm, if they knew where Walton's body was buried, if they told the truth about seeing a UFO. Because by then they just they did say they saw a UFO, uh, you know, and everybody thought they were crazy. That's when they started to really think, okay, these guys must have killed him. Uh, yeah. The men all just denied harming Walton or knowing who had harmed him, denied knowing where the body was and insisted they had de- indeed seen a UFO. Uh, yeah, you're right. Accepting Dallas who had not completed his exam, thus rendering it invalid. Gilson concluded that all the men were truthful and the exam results were conclusive. Uh, now I will say this real quick about lie detector tests. They're, they're never, I don't even think they use those in court anymore. They don't. Because either you can trick them fairly easily, but they're not a – they don't actually tell the truth. They just tell how – when you're questioned, how you react to those questions. Yeah. And they and they base your guilt off of a stress response. Yeah. Which if I was ever on one of those, no matter what, I'm going to be stressed. <laughs> well, that, and that's – they tried to get a base reading at the, you know, at the beginning of the lie detector test. And if you're already shook up about it, you're going to give a, a, a shit base reading and they're not going to be able to – you know, to, so you wouldn't have anything to worry about, Johnny. You'd oh, be that's good. good. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, you're you're fine. You're good. Yeah. So yeah, so then it, it, yeah, it's a uh, five days later, Tuesday afternoon, uh, or morning or whatever it is. Walton comes back. He's found. It's very early. It's very early in the morning, and he calls Mike. Yeah. Uh, what does he call him and from? A payphone or something? A payphone at a gas station, and the payphone and the gas station are something like thirty or forty miles away from Snowflake on a old highway. And uh, when he calls Mike. Mike has been getting a lot of prank calls and things at the time that this happens because of what he said in public about what happened. And so when he answers the phone, he assumes that it's going to be another prank caller. And if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, he hung up once and the, and the, the call, the phone rang again and he, he answered it the first time he just picked it up and dropped it back on the hook, you know, Mm -hmm. like you could do with the old landlines and the phone rang again, and he actually answered it, and it was Travis. He okay. apparently Mike had a very hard time recognizing Travis's voice because of how dehydrated he was. Messed up. Well, he also assumed he was dead. Yeah. You know, this is like getting a call from somebody coming back to life. 
So that's pretty wild. Imagine the position Mike Rogers is in. You know, he's the leader of this crew. His sister is dating this guy. You know, he's got two kids of his own and a wife, you know, to think about. Um, The government contract was the only thing keeping him in his house at that point in time. That was the only job that he had. Um, I don't I'm. I don't recall if his wife was employed at the time, but he was heavily dependent on that uh, lumber contract working out. Yeah. And they were all pulled from that team and pulled from that job after this happened, by the way. Yeah. So he shows up. Uh, there's actually a medical exam that takes place. Uh, they, they check him out to make sure he's okay and, and what had happened to him. Uh, there was two things that were noted by the medical examination. They revealed that he was in good health, but they did to note two unusual features. The first one being a small red spot at the crease of his right elbow that was consistent with a hypodermic injection. But the doctors also noted that the spot was not near a vein. The other thing was that the analysis of his urine revealed a lack of ketones. This is unusual because given that if he was had uh, gone for five days with little or no food as he had insisted... Uh, and as his weight loss had suggested, his body should have begun breaking down fats in order to survive. And this should have led to very high levels of ketone in his urine. Critics would argue his inconsistency is evidence against his story. Uh, let's see. We'll talk about that part later. So, yeah, he shows up and, and they're like, what happened? And he says he can't remember anything except he has these little flashes of, of memories, right? Um, and in total, I think one of the, one of the, one of the, uh, things I saw where he was giving a, a lecture, uh, he says, if you put it all together, he could probably give you about 20 minutes worth of exactly what he can remember. You know what I mean? It's only 20 minutes of, of those five days. Yeah. Which is pretty crazy. If you think about it, I mean, he's, he's missing five days and he just shows up. Obviously the first thing you're going, you're going to want to know is dude, what happened? Yeah. You've been gone for five days. Yeah, so here's a there's a a pretty long write up on his experience. So I was going to read this uh, to be to go from there. It says Walton reported that after approaching the UFO near the work site, the last thing he remembered was being struck by the beam of light. When he awoke, Walton said he was on a reclined bed. A bright light shone above him. The air was heavy and wet. He was in pain and had some trouble breathing. But his first thought was that he was in a normal hospital. As his faculties returned, Walton says he realized he was surrounded by three figures, each wearing a sort of orange jumpsuit. The figures were not human. uh, Walton described the beings as typical of the so-called greys, which feature in some of abduction accounts, uh, quote, shorter than five feet. They had bald heads, no hair. Their heads were domed, very large. They looked like fetuses. They had large eyes, enormous eyes, almost all brown, without much white in them. The creepiest thing about them were those eyes. They just stared through me. Uh, that's end quote. Their ears, nose, and mouth seemed real small, maybe just because their eyes were so huge. Walton related that he feared for his safety and got to his feet and shouted at the creatures to stay away. He grabbed a glass-like cylinder from a nearby shelf and tried to break its tip to create a makeshift knife, but found the object unbreakable. So instead, he waved it at the creatures as a weapon. The trio of creatures left him in the room. Uh, Matheson finds his, well, let's see, blah. Walton then left the exam room via a hallway, which led to a spherical room with only a high-backed chair placed in the center of the room. Though he was afraid there might be someone seated in the chair, Walton says he walked toward it. As he did, lights began to appear in the room. The chair was empty, so Walton says he sat in it. When he did, the room was filled with lights similar to stars projected on a round planetarium ceiling. 
The chair was equipped on the left arm with a single short, thick lever with an oddly shaped molded handle atop some dark brown material. On the right arm, there was an illuminated lime green screen about five inches square with black lines intersected at all angles. When Walton pushed the lever, he reported that the stars rotated around him slowly. When he released the lever, the stars remained at their position. He decided to stop manipulating the lever since he had no idea what it might do. He left the chair and the stars disappeared. Walton thought he had seen a rectangular outline on the rounded wall, perhaps a door, and he went to go look for it. Just then, Walton heard a sound behind him. He turned, expecting more of the short, large-eyed creatures, but was pleasantly surprised to see a tall human figure wearing blue coveralls with a glassy helmet. At the time, Walton said he did not realize how odd the man's eyes were, larger than normal and bright gold color. Walton says he then asked the man a number of questions, but the man only grinned and motioned for Walton to follow him. Walton also said that because of the man's helmet, he might have been unable to hear him, so he followed the man down a hallway which led to a door and a steep ramp down, a lar- uh, down to a large room that Walton described as similar to an aircraft hangar. Walton says he realized he had just left a disc-shaped craft similar to the one he had seen in the forest just before he'd been struck by the bluish light, but the craft was perhaps twice as large. In the hangar-like room, Walton reported seeing other disc-shaped craft. The men led him to another room containing three more humans, a woman and two men, resembling the the helmeted man. These people did not wear helmets, so Walton says he began asking questions of them. They responded with the same dull grin and led him by his arm to a small table. Once he was seated on the table, Walton says he realized the woman held a device like an oxygen mask, which he placed on his face. Before he could fight back, Walton says he passed out. When he woke again, he says he was outside the gas station in Heber, Arizona. One of the disc-shaped craft was hovering just above the highway. After a moment, the craft shot away and Walton stumbled to the telephones and called his brother-in-law. He thought... Uh, that only a few hours had passed. So that's a lot to take in, right? <laughs> yeah. So this guy's been missing for five days. No one knows where he is. They can't find a sign of him. And when he does show up, this this is what you find out that he's he tells you. Right. I think I think anyone, understandably, would have a hard time believing anything he was saying. Yeah, I will obviously. But here's the weird thing. It's like if they if if these guys said this is what they saw before he went missing and obvi- and then people started looking at them like, well, you must be lying. You must have killed him because we can't find him and there's no no, you know, you can't prove that this has happened. He shows up and his story kind of goes with theirs, just the other side of it. Yeah. Yeah, they all fit together. Uh, all, I mean, when you just take all the stories together, they do tell one fairly cohesive story. It's crazy, uh, which which helps a lot. So, uh, but yeah, just my whole point is, I know, I know a lot of people will get mad when somebody will tell a story or what happened to them, and and that uh, nobody believes them. You're like, hey, why don't you believe this guy, right, or, or, or girl, or whoever. But sometimes we got to look at it from the other person's point of view. Like, let's just use the police as an example in this in this scenario. Uh, this guy's been missing for five days. You thought he was dead, like, and you even thought maybe his his uh, coworkers had murdered him, and he just shows up out of nowhere. And right. this is what he's telling you. This, you know, uh, this doesn't make a lot of sense on the surface. You know, the only reason this even makes any sense to us is because we know the whole story now, and you know, we're like Monday. Monday morning quarterback in here. Right. 
But yeah, I, I, I would. It would be the same as if, like you know, uh, let's say me, you, and Carter were hanging out somewhere. Yeah. And all of a sudden, this light comes and 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 Carter goes missing and he's gone. And me and you can't find him, and we take off, and we're scared because we saw his light hit him. And uh, uh, we tell the police what we know, and you know, we go through all this stuff ourselves, like even the fact that they may think we may have killed Carter or whatever. And then Carter just magically shows up out of nowhere days later and says, hey, yeah, I was up in a UFO, and they told me all this stuff, and, and you know, spins this magical yarn <laughs> or whatever you want to say. And no matter how true what Carter is saying his experience is, it's going to be tough for some people to believe. Right. So uh, that's why I always found this story very fascinating to me. Uh, it's it. This is a tough one. Like yeah. a lot of it. I mean, you and I, Chris, are way more of the we want to believe these things, but, you know, we don't want to just believe everything. We want to uh, look at all the evidence. We want to be practical about it that way. Because in my opinion, when you can get rid of some of the stuff, some of the stories or whatever, uh, I mean, you can explain those away. Then the ones that you can't explain are even more believable for me. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you. I mean, we haven't gotten to this territory yet, but this is a very tough one for me. What do you think, Carter? (laughs) Well, uh, I kind of grew up with this. Um, My dad was always into science fiction and um naturally that kind of you know for him led over into ufos and kind of doing his own you know reading about them and stuff like that so when fire in the sky came out my dad was really really excited about it because he was fairly familiar with the story so uh, this has kind of always been there for me um and i tend to believe him uh, in this, because there were several things that you couldn't really fake about it. Um, and obviously, the big my big question would be, okay, well, if he wasn't abducted, then where was he for five days? Uh, yes. yes, that would be the biggest question of all that. Yeah. Uh, even if, let's say you don't believe him, then he had to have been somewhere because they couldn't find him. Right. And it wasn't, you know... It was a big search. I mean, it was a big deal, you know? So I don't know if you can outright dismiss this once you examine it and sort of unpack it and kind of look at everything that, that happened in this time. Yeah. So um, here's the... I, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, so here's the here's the after part of that whole thing. Uh, he wanted to tell his story um, to to the National Enquirer, and the National Enquirer would only take his story if he took a polygraph as soon as possible, and they arranged for one. Um, so he ends up taking the the polygraph, but uh, let's see, the examiner John J. McCarthy of the Arizona Polygraph Laboratory uh, said he could take he could he could he would definitely take in his nervous consider uh, you know his nervous state into consideration because they were trying to say that he wouldn't be able to take a, a polygraph correctly because he was still kind of you know this was quite a situation in his life so to go over what happened to him again would make him nervous so this guy said he would take that into consideration based on you know 
these people, the people who run these polygraph things, I think they're trained to to watch how people react, not just what comes up on the thing. You know what I mean? They watch how they act. So uh, they set this whole thing up, and in uh, in interviewing Walton before the exam began, McCarthy extracted two admissions from him. First, that he had smoked marijuana a few times, but had never used the drug regularly. And secondly, that he and Mike Rogers' younger brother had committed check fraud a few years earlier by altering payroll checks. It was his only serious brush with the law. Walton completed two years probation without further incident. But Walton remained deeply embarrassed about the check fraud. So uh, McCarthy then administered the polygraph, which remains mired in controversy. Walton asserts that McCarthy behaved unprofessionally, while McCarthy insists Walton both failed the polygraph and tried to cheat. At one point, says Walton, McCarthy asked him if he had colluded with anyone to perpetuate a hoax. Uh, Walton said he was unfamiliar with the word, and Walton reported that McCarthy replied in a confrontational and aggressive manner that collusion was planning or conspiring with another, just as Walton had colluded to steal and forge payroll checks. Uh, After completing the exam, McCarthy determined that Walton was lying. Uh, McCarthy's official report states, quote, based on his Reaction on all charts, it is the opinion of this examiner that Walton, in concert with others, is attempting to perpetrate a UFO hoax and that he has not been on any spacecraft. He would later assert that he also, quote, sometimes Travis would hold his breath in an effort to beat the machine. So when you hear that, like, what else? It it makes it a little harder. Here, I want to though, bring back the, what I said the whole about. Thing, yeah, I was, I was just about to say, though, you know, like what you said, you still you can't just go on a polygraph test. Right. They don't do that in a court of law as they shouldn't. Right. Uh, I've heard many people say, many really smart people say that if you're offered, even if you're completely innocent of whatever, and you're off and they want you to take a polygraph test, that you, you're better off saying no, no matter what. Because yeah, uh, I've heard that, too. Because even though they can't use that in the court of law, the court of opinion will be against you no matter kind of however it goes. That was actually Alan still, Dallas's logic for not wanting to take the polygraph. Because yeah, if you think about it in society today, I mean, especially I mean, I still hear it sometimes like uh, when I'm listening to these stories, these true crime stories or whatever, uh, they'll say, hey, they either failed or they passed a polygraph test. A lot of people still today put a lot of stock in that. Uh, yeah, because you're kind of taught that growing up. But, well, it's a lie detector. It knows if you're lying or not. And that's not really actually the case. Right. Right. So that I, I almost automatically dismiss those okay. just as a just as a rule of thumb for myself. Cool. But I understand what you're saying. Like, it's it, it still sounds like it was a weird situation between those two. Yeah, it, it really does. You know, sometimes we as people kind of know if somebody's lying to us or not just by talking to them. Uh huh. Yeah. Like, like there'll be, you know, how they act, their body language or, or just in how, like the way their voice sounds, there's all kinds of things you can use to kind of figure that stuff out sometimes. <laughs> I was, uh, uh, I was looking on Wikipedia here and it says in 1978, Walton wrote, wrote the book, the Walton experience detailing his claims, which became the basis for the 1993 film fire in the sky. This is what made me chuckle. Paramount, uh, Paramount Pictures decided Walton's account was, quote, too fuzzy and too similar to other televised encounters. So they ordered screenwriter uh, Tracy Torme to write a, quote, flashier, more provocative abduction story. Yep. 
Because there is crazy stuff that happens in the movie. Like, isn't there that weird scene? I always remember the eyeball scene. Well, there's that, and there was no, uh, there was no like James Garner character. And also, I think uh, there was no in the film. Doesn't it? Isn't it like that light hits him, and he kind of just kind of like is like floating there for a minute. Well, he gets blown back in the movie by the light. Oh, he does. Um, the Does- problem with the film is that if you watch it enough times, you can see him breathing. It's cold enough that his breath mists. <laughs> so, you know what I did see in, uh, about that though. The um, I saw recently in some of his talks that he he thinks what really happens now. He originally he used to think that it was that they grabbed him for whatever reason for for experiments or to to do whatever. But he thinks now what really happened was that they were just trying to take off, right? And whatever had hit him was part of their their uh, their propulsion system and that they came back to get him because they wanted to help him because he would have died. So he he think he looks at them like they were like paramedics. So they almost as if they saved his life. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. how he sees it now. Huh. If if that's- like if we want to say that this really happened and he's one hundred percent being honest, that's how he sees it now. Like that's the case, and so that's that's the deal. Let's let's get to that part of the round table now, uh, Carter. I think we know that you really you do you you believe this right? Like you you feel like his story is is um, authentic the way he tells it. He doesn't feel like he's lying, it, and the fact that all these guys back up the story, it and they went through five days of maybe going to jail. Yeah, that to me that that's one of the things that really lends credence to it because you know, if you're going to if you're going to if you're going to hoax something like this, you've got to take into account the fact that if you go to the cops with this, okay, and you tell them first that your friend is missing. The cops know obviously it's a small town, the cops know what you do. They know who you are, you know, they know that you go up here and do logging every day, you work with, you know, chainsaws and stuff. So the cops probably assume you know, if they if they really wanted to kill this guy and get rid of his body, they could probably do it. You know, they they could cut him up. They could, you know, bury him in a bunch of different places out there. And we and we, the police, would would probably never find the body. Right. So you've, you've kind of got to assume going in that they're going to suspect you of murdering this guy. Right. You know, and and. Five days, I mean, hell, five, now five days, they would have already been arrested, you know. It, but if you want to look at me, the other side of it, if you want to if you want to play the, the, the skeptic side of it, that's the perfect time for him to come back because now it was getting too real. And now these guys really were looking at spending time in jail and they did not want to even do one night. So it was like, all right, dude, you got to come back now and do the other part of the story. I agree that that's, you know, it. it I don't want to say convenient. Yeah, but it is kind of convenient, right? It is kind of convenient. I mean, Johnny, where do you? Stand but again, on it, it to me, it begs the question: Where did he go? I mean, that's that's the biggest question in all, whether you believe it or not. Maybe chilling at a hotel because, again, they said his his body, his urine didn't hold the ketones that his body should have shown had he been dehydrated or had not eaten for five days. Right, but it also said that he had lost weight. Yeah, true. So that so that's weird to me too. That's like contradicting evidence well, right there. Well, you can lose you well how much weight did they lose? We'd have to see if how drastic it was because you could lose weight by still eating and just watching what you eat for those 5 days or eating very little to make it so that you lose weight, but you're not starving yourself. 
And each person's different too when it comes to that. So. True. Yeah. Uh, so I don't. I don't know. Uh, this one, I'm telling you, this one's really tough for me. Like if if somebody wanted me to come up with a list of abduction cases that I feel could be the most realistic or the most true, uh, this one may be one of the ones I would throw in there as a possible. Yeah. Yeah. But the the issues are still there. Like the convenience of him showing up, I get, understand that does feel convenient. But at the same time, I'm going to argue what Carter is ar- is uh, argued there is that where did he go for those five days? Did he just go hide out in the woods? Did he go to a hotel? Because if he did either of those things, uh, if he had went to the hotel or whatever, yeah, or if yeah. he just went to the town over, somebody would have seen him. Or he could have been hiding out at Mike's house. I'm, I'm going to assume, and I'm making a lot of assumptions here, I'm going to assume that if they at one point were looked at as suspects in a possible murder case, that they checked all those guys out. Oh, true. Uh, you know, uh, they didn't go anywhere without the police knowing. Hmm. is what I would assume and hope, honestly, if they're suspects in a murder case. But uh, this one is so weird to me. Like, if if they're all doing a hoax, all of them, I I think, as far as I can remember, all of them stuck to that story. Yeah. Yep. And the more people, and we all know, the more people that you add in on a hoax or whatever, the tougher and more difficult time you're going to have keeping that hoax around. Right, because somebody Somebody, at some point cracks. Right, somebody's going to yep. crack, or somebody's going to talk, or they're going to tell their friend, and that friend's going to talk. You know, uh, if you're in on a hoax, you, and you're if you're in on something that's big, that made major headlines and stuff, and you got this part in this story, it's kind of human nature to want to to tell other people that you're part of this, that you have a part of this, you know, right. and to, and to give them inside information so they, you know, so that's it, kind of it's kind of a human nature type of thing. So I think overall, if you had to ask me if I believe in this, yes or no, I lean towards yes, if I'm being honest, but at the same time, there is still some holes in this. So yeah, uh, it, I'm leaning towards yes, but I'm not a definite yes, which is kind of a cop out, but still. Mine's a cop out too, because I want to believe. I do. I want to believe. I don't know if I do, and I don't know if I don't. Yes, this is a very tough one, right? Yeah, because like I want to believe, but there's the holes. So how can we plug those holes up? And it's hard to, you know what I mean? Yeah, we got to put our fingers in the uh, dike there. Yeah. What do the creepers think? I know, I, I bet I could tell what some creepers think already. I know what they're thinking and how they think in the in terms of their thoughts on the Travis Walton UFO incident. But uh, if we've not heard from you in a while, drop a drop a comment underneath this episode on the Facebook page and let us know what you think of the the case. Do you think this yes. really happened to him? Do you uh, do you think he was just trying to get money? Him and his friends put together a sensational story and maybe uh, capitalize on. I, I saw that the night before he went missing. I guess NBC televised a, a special movie, the movie, the dramatization of the Benny Benny and Betty Hill case, Barney and Betty Hill case. Yeah, and apparently Mike had watched a half of it or a part of it, so they're saying, "Oh no, they were just inspired to do their own story." So, what do you think, guys? Leave it in the comments. True, not true, creepy, not creepy. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely creepy. One or the other. It's a good one, man. It's definitely one that's that's it's very famous. Every almost everyone knows it. The movie's a pretty decent movie. It's not bad. Uh, Carter, wanna, you just, you just rewatched you it. Both. I've never seen that movie. <laughs> oh, come on, bro. Did you just rewatch <laughs> it, Carter, for, for this? 
Yeah, man. Oh, sweet. Real quick uh, review. What's your rating on it? W- uh, watching it again. Well, I would give it four out of five because it's uh, it's a good. You know, this is one of those things. And me, and I guess maybe I approach it differently because I'm a writer. Um, whether or not you believe in, you know, ghosts, alien abductions, you know, the paranormal, any of that stuff, it makes great fiction. Oh yeah. You know, whether any of it is true or not. You know, it, 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 it doesn't it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? It's still it, it makes a good story. Yeah, it's like that. That's, you know, it's like that little that little what's the that little ditty about the uh, the guy that tells this great story about catching whatever size fish it was. Right. And at the end of the night, a father and son are walking away from the bar after hearing the story. And the son looks at the father and is just like. That's not true, is it? And the father looks over and says, it was a good story, right? The kid says, yeah. He goes, well, then it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Ex- ex- exactly like that. Um, and I did have occasion to meet one of the actors in the movie, too. And, nice. Uh, he said my favorite line from he's he played Bobby, one of the guys in the backseat. The, remember the guy that's like, that ain't no fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he plays he plays Bobby Coggle, and I got him to actually say that ain't no fireman, and that's what he signed on my Fire in the Sky DVD. Nice, dude. That's really cool. That is very cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was pretty cool, man. It was pretty. He played Eyeball Chambers in Stand by Me. Remember Chris's older brother hung out with Kiefer Sutherland's gang. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That kid. Yeah, yeah. He was in a lot of stuff when we were younger. Was he in the Sandlot? Because I've seen the Sandlot. <laughs> <laughs> Was he in Mighty Ducks? He was in he was in Explorers, Johnny. I've seen Mighty Ducks one and two. <laughs> oh, don't don't mention Mighty Ducks right now, man. Come Angels on. in the outfield. Seen it. <laughs> Airbud. Can I get some Airbud up in here? Because I've seen that. Now you gotta really, go check now you gotta go check out Fire in the Sky. Apparently yeah, so. you do, man. So I'm gonna judge it harshly against Airbud though, because I love Airbud. Dude, you should do a fight. No, it's too bad you know the story already. I saw you do a fire in the sky for season two of your horde movie reviews. That's true. I do already know the story, though. But, so uh, yeah, too bad. Uh, all right, creepers. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another week of history, Cre- history creeps roundtable in the bag. Uh, we're out of here. You can hang out, but we're leaving the clubhouse. Make sure you shut off the lights, lock the door. For Carter Johnson, for Johnny Townsend, this is Chris Chavez. As always, stay creepy.